Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Syslog podcast, the podcast about systems and programming topics. Flo and I are uh, recording today in our secret recording studio in the wonderful city of Dresden, next to the Christmas market. And um, since in the field we are working in, reliable and secure software is a big topic, uh, our first guest in the Syslog podcast is Alexander Zinier from Componolit. And I will just give the word to Alex to introduce himself. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm Alex Nye. I'm uh, the CEO and founder of Componolit. Um, and we're a small company also based in Dresden. Um, and we focus on building systems that do not break. So um, whenever um, you need a system, you need software that um where you can be sure that it's going to work under all circumstances, um, then, then this is something that we are trying to achieve. And the, the reason um, you, you could have for, for wanting such systems um, is like you have a safety, safety case, for example. Um, so um, th think of a pacemaker or think of a medical device. So for, for these kind of devices, today they all have IT and software in it. Um, and uh, you don't want to, those devices to stop and the other big thing so you mean like devices that could actually kill you yeah right i mean all these 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 big devices that could kill you like airplanes that's nothing that we're doing right now okay. but um you also don't want don't, don't want the, the software of your airplane suddenly stop doing useful things uh my, my actual background um uh, uh, is is high security so this is the other the other big thing you you want to be you, you you can be concerned of. So if you have information um, that must not leak to um, uh, to parties that are not allowed to see them, um, then you also don't want your software crash or um, leaking information out of the out of your control. So that's actually my my background where I'm coming from. So I've I've been working in high in the high security industry for ten years and. There um, came the requirement to um, build systems differently than than what's the what's unfortunately the industry standard. So, what, do, what is your uh, summary of the in, of the industry standard? Um, so, unfortunately, our in, the, the IT industry um, has has made people believe for the last thirty years that software bugs are just something we have to live live with so yeah it's like the weather you can't do anything right about it. right that that's the point um bugs are in there and then there are these hackers who have some kind of magic skills and, and they can get into any systems unfortunately if if you if you take an arbitrary sample of systems today it's it's exactly like that but but most people um do not realize that this is due to partly very simple software bugs. So we are building our software in a way um, that it does break. And people think uh, also be, because our industry has made them believe that, that this is the case, that you cannot do anything about it. And we say no. Um, systems can be trustworthy and you can build systems in a way that they are reliable. And so they are mainly two ingredients that we see that, that a system that the reliable system has to have and that's uh firstly a component-based architecture so um the monolithic systems we see today we have today 
are the one root cause of the of, of the big problem. If if there is a bug in one part of the system, um, it's gonna spread into other parts of the system, and you cannot do anything about it. And the monolithic architecture um, just creates such a big attack surface that. It's really hard to get that that big mass of software right. You mean like a okay? So you have like a million software components. They're all just sort of integrated into one big mess, and then everything can basically mess up everything yeah. else. So I mean, if if your program is so complex and it has millions or even billion lines of code, um, chances are high that you will find that one buffer overflow or whatever um, that that allows you to take control over the system. If you then um, do not have any barriers between portions of that, between components of that system, then the, the attacker is going to control the whole thing. Okay, so I, I understand the problem, but what I would uh, be interested is, uh, in is how did you end up doing your own company? So this, this is not a decision to take lightly. You could have just taken a job in some random software company and tried to start the revolution. So, <laughs> Um, I mean, I have worked for, for companies that I do not own before. Um, and I think I, I did change things, but of course, if you have your own company, then you can set the standards. So, um, in, in my company, all, all people basically do, do reliable software, do ver program verification, and there is no, there's no debates whether a system is uh, has to be component based or not, because it has to. So um, you mean you can, uh, if the discussion starts in your company, it starts at a different level. So you just have, don't have to convince people from zero percent to yeah. You're basically just arguing at a very high level. We we, we discuss uh, how we build component based systems and how we prove programs not whether or not we should do that. And that's actually the, the second ingredient that, that I think is, um, important to build trust, trustworthy systems. Um, so the, the component based approach where you, and I mean a real component based approach. Often people think separating systems and arbitrary components, like putting stuff into VMs is, is gaining you much in terms of reliability. Um, but we believe that you have to, have to to cut the, the system in the right way that the, the, your complex functionality which you never gonna get right is is in big untrusted components and then you have trusted small components that actually um give you some some well-defined security benefit like everything every disk access of of your untrusted component is encrypted by some small trusted component where you can be very sure that it that it does the right thing and for these, the question now is, um, why, why do we think that these, these trusted components do the right thing? Why, why does anything improve when building such a system? And the, we think the key is that those small trusted components not only have to be small, but also should have some formal argument that they are actually correct. So, and just, so just to back up, um, what you're saying is that security works in a, a bit like, Performance, so in that, that there's like a small kernel of your software, and I mean kernel not in the uh, operating system kernel, mm -hmm. it's like a small core of the software that's that needs to be secure for the functionality of your software to be secure as a whole. 
And the same as for performance, you're usually like 95% of the code doesn't matter for performance. And there's like this tiny piece of code. Yeah. And then you find your inner loops, which you, which you can optimize. Yeah. Um, if you put it like this, it sounds a bit like this, this comes out of the software naturally. And there you just have to find this core. Unfortunately, um, it's, it's often not obvious which part of some big complex software you should put into these small trusted components. Um, I mean, it's true for performance. I take my profiler and it says, uh, go get, go hack some magic there. Yeah. And there's no security profiler, which says like, Oh, go and make this code really secure. That, would, that would be nice actually. So, um, so how do you find the, uh, the, the, the components you need to be able to trust? I, I guess at the moment, this is mostly experience from, from, from working in, in security. Um, I mean, if, if you have, if you have built some of those systems, it's kind of natural that, um, if, if an application, if a big untrusted application has some data that's of, of, uh, of, of value, that's, that's confidential, say, and it then, um, gives it to some other complex component that implements a file system or a disk driver or, or something like that. Um, then you want to know, okay, what happens to that data if it's passed down to the file system or, um, or, or the disk driver? And so one, one idea that you could have is, okay, let's introduce some trusted component, which, um, just encrypts all the requests that go down to the disk. And so we can, can remove the, the disk and the disk driver, uh, from our trusted computing base. So that's kind of a, reasoning with with respect to the to the property of the data that you have but like the 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 security profiler uh, i'm not aware of anything uh, existing uh, like that. it would be yeah. really nice to no, i think that's just like parts of it i mean you can get uh, static analysis tools that that tell you about your horrible c code um yeah. but that's a, is a good um 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 opportunity to come to the other topic and that is you're doing something special in your company that other companies don't do. And I think you know what I mean. So, um, yeah, so that's, uh, the question is, how do you, how do you, do you, uh, make these, these trusted components the right way that they have? Exactly. That, that you can be sure they do not crash and maybe even sure that they do exactly what you intended them to do. And yeah, what we do I mean, is. I know many people working in the same field as I do that just say, if you hold the C compiler the right way, you get a pretty nice secure code. Probably the same people already work uh, in, 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 in doing good C code for quite a long time. So what they don't say is that they have a lot of experience writing good C code. Um, our approach is different in, in a way that we use a, a language that has been designed to avoid errors. And I would say C is on, on the opposite, uh, opposite side of things, actually. It's so a very it, diplomatic way of yeah. putting it. So C <laughs> is on the YOLO, I want to get shit done <laughs> side of the spectrum. And it say. doesn't even get that one right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so so you, let's just agree that C is very old. And there's better ways to do things nowadays. <laughs> yeah. And for, so you said you're using, um, Ada. Yep. And, um, before we actually get to Ada itself, so maybe can you outline a bit how you actually ended up using Ada? Because like for most people, this is something 
you hear in in uh at university once or twice and it pops up on yeah. wikipedia but no one really has direct contact with it so how was your yeah that, that would be me um okay so uh that's a good question actually it's it's been a long time i um actually in in in, in my youth i started programming with pascal um, I guess because that was taught in school, because th th that's what it is. It's a, it's a teaching language. And I, I, one, one part was I liked it. And the other part was it's not, at least back then, it was not super suited for real world applications. So you had your limitations, like no real pointer support and so on. And so, um, eventually I, I switched to C, which I felt was a big loss and downgrade in terms of usability and, and, Type safety and so on. Um, it took me, took me a long time to somehow get acquainted to C and uh, not messing it up all the time. Um, and I, I was still searching for some real world replacement for, for, for that Pascal that I had been using. And eventually, um, I, uh, recognized that ADA exists and, um, there was a, uh, project in the nineties to bring ADA support into the GCC, which today is the GNATS compiler front end for, for GCC that compiles ADA code. And so with the availability of, of ADA in, in GCC, this was kind of tractable to, to use it. So in the past, ADA actually, speaking of all, of the old C, um, ADA actually is not a very new language. It's, it's been standardized uh, the first time in, in 1983. Um, as, as a reaction to, um, to that, the, Dozens of, of languages that were around in the seventies. So like, um, you couldn't do any projects anymore because so many languages existed. And that it, this actually came out of the, uh, of the U.S. military who somehow looked for a, uh, for a way to have one language, uh, which they could all do their projects with. Um, so they had 10 standards and then they invented a new one or? <laughs> in fact, they had like 450 languages uh, oh. and then they invented a new one and forced people to use it, ah, okay. which so. which is part of the reason that you only hear about ADA very occasionally. Um, I think in the past, many people just didn't like ADA because they were forced to use it. And maybe also because it came out of a military context. But, um, today we have, we have free and open compilers. Um, we have a, quite a lot of resources on it. And it's actually even, even though it's, it has some history, it has a lot of modern and sometimes some even unique features that, that you would expect from a modern language. So. Speaking of that, so in the grand scheme of um, Java, Haskell, uh, I'm thinking of another language that's completely different, but I can't think of one right now. So in, in this space of programming languages, where would you place Ada and for people who don't know what it actually is? Mm, it is... So it's certainly... Not so much at the, at the Haskell side that you were mentioning. So it's an imperative and object oriented language. So that, that's kind of from, from, from those features, you would somehow put it in, in, uh, BNF C++, maybe, maybe also Java. Um, it has originally been designed and still is very usable for embedded systems. So when one really 
cool feature that I like very much about Ada is it that in, in the standard, um, there's already the feature built in to subset it. So I, you can at, at, at compile time say, please switch off all pointers. Please, um, uh, do not do dynamic allocations and such kind of things. And you can really, in, in, on, in, on a rather fine-grained basis, say which, which features do you like in your systems and which don't you like. And maybe then you do not have to implement a dynamic memory allocation, which makes you, your system some, somehow safer. And that's something that we are also using for our systems to, from, from start, not having to deal with some of the features that are nice from a high-level point of view, but you don't want to have in, a, in an embedded system. So yeah, imperative, object-oriented. One feature that I don't know what other, which, which other language have it is contract-based programming. So that's something that came into ADA in the, in the 2012 standard. And this is really nice. You can um, annotate your, your sub programs, your, your, your functions and procedures. With, with preconditions and postconditions and on entry of the subprogram, um, there, there's going to be a check, uh, that the, this, this precondition actually holds and then you can rely on it in the, in the program. And then you can also have postconditions where it is checked that a certain state has been reached in your subprogram. Um, and in the dynamic version, we are also going to, uh, talk about static verification, I guess, later. But in the dynamic version, then you, you're going to have an exception that tells you, okay, um, the, the assumption that you have made earlier in during developing that program, uh, they, they do not hold in this particular execution. So this contract-based program programming, this is, I would say that's rather unique. You don't have this so, so much in widespread, widespread languages. So I've only, uh, also only seen that really in, Ada, and I found it really nice because uh, what you use assertions for in other languages, you have real nice syntax for it, and it sort yeah. of becomes part of the documentation. You say yeah. like, oh, you need to hand in an array that has at least uh, four elements, and uh, at the end of the function, the array is sorted or something. So that's really the yeah the contract of um, of the function that was really nice, and I've also seen that this is going to be part of a future C++ standard, but unfortunately not C++ 2020. So, um, yeah, but that's, that's definitely really nice. Yeah. So the, um, what else could be, could be said about, uh, about Ada? Probably, I think talking about contracts, um, you, if, if, so I mentioned earlier systems that, that should not fail because this would be like life threatening or, or very confidential data is going to be released. Um, for, for this kind of programs, you also would not accept to throw an exception. Um, because then the system is going to stop. And if, if the thing that shouldn't happen has happened, what are you going to do in, in your exception handler? Um, for, for this, um, the, this, the Spark subset of ADA, um, has been created. So Spark, um, so you could think of it as a, as a own language, but the, the nice thing is that it's in fact a subset of ADA, which can be compiled with the standard ADA compiler. So since the, the contracts are part of the language, um, those very contracts are also used for the formal verification part. 
So you mean that uh, every Spark program is also a legal ADA program, and even if you don't exactly. have the magic toolchain uh, for the interesting parts of Spark that we're going into, but you can just treat it as a normal program. Yeah. So um, and it's all it's it's a separate thing. Compiling it and and proving it are two different things that you're probably gonna gonna be gonna be doing more or less at the same time, depending on on how you work with it. Um, but these are two tools and you prove it and you compile it. So maybe before we go to, uh, to, to Spark, so who's actually using Ada these days? So there's lots of hype around modern C++, there's hype around uh, Rust, there's hype around mm. TypeScript. Um, <laughs> and it's very rare that you hear something about Ada Spark. You do hear stuff about Ada Spark, but not, not a lot. Mm -hmm. Which could be an indication of less people using it, which which I guess is true. So who's who's using it? It's very strong um, in the in the safety domain. So um, you will find it in in airplanes. You also uh, will find it in things like satellites. There have been projects with, uh, where satellites had been done in Ada, even though this. This is typically not life-threatening. If a, if a satellite fails, it's at least very expensive. Yeah, it's life-threatening for your political career. Uh, exactly. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then I do know of applications in the high security domain. Um, so, for example, I've been building a, um, a secure workstation using, um, using Spark and Ada in the past. Um, yeah, in the, for the general public, um, there's a, um, there's a annually competition, which is called Make with Ada, where, um, where, where you can build stuff in the, in the IoT or maybe robotic domain, uh, using Ada. And with, um, I think that there, there is quite some interest there. Um, yeah, I guess. We are using it for 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 high security. <laughs> That's true. Um, so there has been a trend in in our industry towards more safety and security aware programming. I think this is a very generic way of putting it. And um, one outcome of that was that the uh, Mozilla uh, Foundation is it a foundation? I There's think. a foundation and a company. Oh, oh my God. You can't so be wrong. Um, okay. uh, they started uh, Rust as a programming language to actually be able to write a uh, secure rendering engine for a browser. So do you think it's solving the same problems? Is it solving different problems than, than Ada and Spark? Or? I mean, of course, um, people that use Rust most certainly have the same motivation um, that, that the people that, that use Ada and Spark have. So that, that's something that we observed. Um, normally, if you talk to um, C programmers or people who have never exposed to any critical software, uh, you, you start explaining why you, why you are doing that and why you have to have some, some different tools and, and, and language constructs. Um, but if you talk to, with Rust programmers, you just, you usually not, don't talk about why you need it, but how it's done and what the capabilities are and so, so on. So it's, it's like a, a very similar community of, of, of people. So people that see, okay, the, the current tools and languages 
don't don't uh, don't cut it and we need something better um so from from what can be done uh, with, with with rust and with ada and spark uh, the the main objective as for i'm not a I'm not a Rust expert, but the main objective, as I see it, of Rust is uh, memory safety. I mean, you, no matter what input you present to your program, you don't want to have it uh, go into some arbitrary state and, and crash and um, uh, allow the, the attacker to take over your software. And I guess uh, Rust is achieving this pretty well. Um, Ada... Um, also does achieve that. Um, so with the, with the runtime checks that, that Ada has, like, of, if you have an array in Ada, for example, then you can, can define with the array type also an index type and just say, okay, my array uh, has, has, has some particular index type, type that goes from 10 to 30 or something. And then you can enable runtime checks, which check you that at every array access, every array index, um, you're actually in bounds of that array and otherwise you can get an exception. So there, there are, of course, other, other checks in the language. And with these features, um, I would say you, you achieve a comparable safe memory safety, um, as, as Rust does, probably with some exceptions. Um, why, so, uh, the Spark subset, as, as, at least as we use it, achieves a bit more than that. So something like you want to make sure that after you called your subprogram that sorts a list, this list is actually sorted. This is, this is some functional correctness property of your program. And that's something that I'm actually after. So eventually I want to know um, that my program is according to some specification that I wrote. And I know that there are activities to, to bring formal verification to Rust, obviously, that's something that you would do, but it, uh, as, as of now, it doesn't seem to be, seem to be there in the language. So that's like with Spark, you achieve what Rust does. Um, but you can also go further and say, uh, can, and further improve certain properties of your program by, by adding these, uh, these contracts to, to the programs and then prove them. And that's the other difference. Prove those properties before ever running the program. And then they hold given that your assumptions that you had are actually fulfilled. So, so what is the, uh, um, what is the primary benefit you get from using Spark right away without doing anything extra? So what, how would you define extra? <laughs> I mean, if I just managed to express my program in, in yeah. Spark and, um, the tools chain says, okay. Ah. Uh, what does my program now? Yeah, the tool chain typically doesn't say okay instantaneously. Yeah, I know. To... I tried. Uh, <laughs> I tried it, and it said no to me a lot. Yeah. Um. So in fact, there are so they they define different levels of um, of assurance that you can achieve with Spark, and um, the first level would just be having correct spark syntax correct spark code and, and having something that's in the spark subset and there you um you already have certain restrictions that make your program more reliable like i mean these index types that i mentioned but also stuff like 
pointers can be used only in very restricted ways. This is very similar to the borrowing concept of, of Rust because they borrowed it from there. So that is something that, that came into Rust, into Spark like a year, a year ago or so. Um, but all, by already by, by uh, being in the Spark subset, um, you can, your program probably is going to be much, much safer because something like, I don't know, address po pointer arithmetics just are not going to be available to you. Pointers are only be available in a very restricted way. Um, you do have these, these, these contracts that may be enforced. Um, then you can go a bit, f bit further and uh, the next level would be flow analysis. So if you do fo flow analysis and on your program, I guess if, when you tried it, you, you probably did this, I guess. Um, then it's going to be warn you about uninitialized variables. Um, or maybe if you assign a value to a variable and then, um, overwrite it without using it, that's often a sign for uh, at least maybe bad coding style, but maybe also a problem because you actually intended to use that value in between, uh, setting it and overwriting it. So that is something that the, the flow analysis of Spark is going to warn you about. And, um, that's going to catch quite some errors. Um, you still don't know uh, whether your, your program has any has any overflows um, or or range value, uh, violations or something like that, and that would be the next the next level that you prove um, what is called the absence of runtime errors. And um, this for, for this you still do not need any explicit contracts normally. Um, you just have the the, the your program and the tools that, that generate verification conditions, which you then have to prove. And for example, uh, if you have, an, have a division in your program, then you must make sure that you don't divide by zero. So there is a verification condition emitted that says the expression that you have here does not have to be zero. Please, please show me. And then you have different options. And, and that's the point where you definitely are not just going to run the tools and it says yes, it's going to say I cannot prove that uh, you do not divide by zero and then you need to need to see how you can modify your program to actually achieve that. There are different options to do that. So I think this is the, the main point that is, uh, so if people know something about Spark, they will typically know that uh, it proves the absence of runtime errors. Mm -hmm. So this, this is, um, oh, yeah, and this is also what I tried and I, th I found this was a complete uh, mind-blown moment, uh, moment when you try to get some code that you could have just written in C and no one would have cared about it. And you try to prove the absence of runtime errors and it will just yell at you the whole time about uh, integer overflows and say like, yeah, but if someone hands in uh, two to the power of 64 minus one here, um, you will be sad. And um, it's really hard to write programs that deal very well yeah. with these situations and and, and to, just to, to make this thought um, what I found amazing about it is not that the tool can do this but that as a typical C and C++ programmer and pretty much for all languages you just don't care yeah. um, you just say I'm using uh, UN64 it's pretty large it's going to be fine and, now and, you, and you, that, you are lucky you haven't done this for 10 years I cannot write C programs anymore it's because I'm thinking about these verification conditions in my head and I'm, I, I just cannot write, write C programs because, uh, I, 
just like you, I, th I think about the stuff I have not thought about and that could happen in that code. And that's, uh, yeah, that's a benefit of the tools. And of, of course, also a, a language subset that allows you to do that analysis. I mean, for, for the arbitrary C program, it is extremely hard to do such an analysis because it has constructs that are constructs that are not easily analyzable. So, yeah, and I think also the, uh, I think it's 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 not really obvious what what it means to have no runtime errors to to most people because um, most people just take it for granted that for some inputs the program will just fail and say abort it, um, and the this feeling that you have that you give some code to it and you spend some time to to make the, the proving the prover happy and at the end you get something where uh, it's formally proven that at least you will not integer overflow you will not divide by zero you will have no area out of bounds mm -hmm. um, and not in the sense that the program will just uh, gracefully shut down in that case but it will just not happen and I think this is a really powerful yeah. um, tool And that brings us back to the to the point where pe I mean, people today think that software cannot be correct, and that if the hacker comes, he can always um, somehow get into your program. But uh, this is only software errors. So you you can actually construct software in a way that at least um, it does not randomly crash on, on on certain input data. And that's um, so we. We just released an, um, an, an XML library in Spark as, uh, as, as open source. Um, and I did a rather extensive fuzz testing on it. And this was really disappointing, actually, because the fuzzer just ran for a couple of days and found nothing. I mean, th this was the expected outcome, actually. But fuzzing is no fun if you do verification. It was sort of anticlimactic. <laughs> it doesn't so. find anything. Yeah. yeah. So how much... Uh, Is the additional effort of doing all these um, checks and making sure that it really doesn't crash if you... Mm -hmm. I mean... I, I'm, ha I'm having a hard time to quantify this. Um, it definitely is more effort. I mean, that, that that's clear because you always go for the 100... Or most of the time go for the 100% solution. So you, you show that... The, the program does the right thing in, for every input and not just the one you thought about. Um, but I cannot, I cannot really tell you numbers. So we are building partially complex things like uh, XML libraries and um, encryption components and such stuff. And um, I don't know how much more time that takes. Maybe twice. Oh, I don't know. And and. Uh, the other question would be, does it get easier? I mean, do you get used to thinking about the corner cases? Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. So the, um, it's thinking about the corner cases. I think you get in there rather quickly because I mean, after the, 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 the third time when the thing said, you, you must be careful about this division. Make sure it's not zero. Uh, you're gonna, you're gonna know and then you maybe check this first or choose your data type so it does not have the zero in it and then, then you're done. Um, what I find challenging or found challenging in the past, but you also get used to it is that, um, it's not always, it's not always clear why the prover cannot prove a certain 
precondition, for example, or a certain assertion that you have in the code. So the, um, I mean, what happens? You have that verification condition, and then 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 um, a couple of SMT solvers are launched on that on the verification conditions, and eventually, if 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 the, if it's true, what is what, what what needs to be proven there? Then they just come back and say, okay, this is this is true. But in the case of of problems in your program, um, it's just gonna come back with, okay, I did not find the proof of of what you are trying to state here in that assertion or on that or on that precondition or something, and that could happen. F- f- Different things, for example, your code could just be wrong and you need to change it so that the verification condition can be proven. It could mean um, that the that the provers are just not powerful enough um, that that they can prove it. Those limitations exist and it happens very quickly if you use exponentiation, for example, then this, this, this does happen. Um, or you have provided too little information to the uh, to the provers. Like there's some, uh, you you actually need um, another precondition to your function that that you can prove some assertion inside that function. Something that you have assumed maybe when writing it, but you have not made it explicit in your in your precondition of of, of the program. So um, and the, the hard part, what I find hard or found hard in the past, and it's getting a bit better over time, is knowing which of these cases you currently have. Is it just the prover that's not powerful enough? Do I have to give the prover more time, maybe more, more, just more CPU power? Or is my program wrong? And for this, you need quite a bit of intuition to, to really know which of these cases. And sometimes you hit limitations of the tools. So is there the opportunity to, to manually prove stuff. So I think I read something that you can generate proof obligations for some of the popular, uh, tooling for the popular automated reasoning tools. Yeah. So there is, uh, there, there are, there are different options to, if, if the provers, the automatic provers cannot prove it, you have, you have different options. One thing, um, would be to write lemmas, which lemmas in Spark on, and this is, um, just a, a program with a pre and post condition, but not for the, for the sake of actually running something, but just if to, to show that if I have these three preconditions, then these post conditions hold. And in the program, um, you can then add assertions that guide the, the guide the automatic provers to the actual post conditions that you want to show. Um, that often helps to get more complex stuff through. Um, then there is a interactive would, would, theory. Would it be improved? something like uh, that at the end of a loop iteration, I write, uh, and now the array is sorted until this point? Or um, this is this is something. Um, so so what what you're mentioning is uh, loop invariance. Um, that's something that you almost always have to have to do manually. So okay. what the loops are, I mean as uh, loops are, are executed several times, um, that the prover cannot just know, um, what's the relation between this, the state before the pro- before the loop and after the loops. And what you have to do is to provide a loop invariant that's, that cuts the loop into, into one, into three parts, one from the beginning of your program to the beginning of the loop, one through the loop and one from, from the loop t- till the end of the loop. And so this is what you, what I think most people have seen in university when they had to prove tiny programs. So yeah. it was exactly like that. 
Yeah, it's it's still like that. So that is something that you you constantly have to deal with. I mean, there are some some automatic uh, some automatic tools from or some some magic from the tools that for, for loops, for example, often don't need the loop invariant, and they often can derive the variables that are not changed in the loop and and, and such things. Uh, but for the, for your sorting example, very, most likely you 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 will need to provide a loop invariant that says okay, um, up up, un, up until the the element i uh, the the uh, the array is already sorted and everything behind behind the index is not sorted. So that's something you're gonna need to do. So okay, that already sounds like you have to have some knowledge about how. Uh, This for, you have to have a model of this formal reasoning in your head. And uh, let me relate one story I had while uh, toying around with cock. Mm -hmm. This is not funny. Um, <laughs> Now you've made it funny. Mm -hmm. yes, But maybe uh, you want to explain what cock so, actually is. So we were, is. we were thinking about theory improvers. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, cock is a theorem prover. Um, and we've been, uh, Flo and I had some, um, contact with it in our previous job. And I was, I was sort of curious and I, I wrote a sort, uh, function. So this is like what you start with. And I tried to prove it correct. And I, uh, I wrote a post condition that said like the result of this function is sorted. And then our, um, our architect basically came to me and smiled at me and said like, um, Yes, you've proven that your uh, result is sorted, but you haven't proven that it's actually a permutation of the input. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and th th this was also a, um, a sort of humiliating but enlightened, um, enlightening moment for me. And it it feels like even with all the tooling, you need some some at least a little bit of background to to make this work. So, what what do you think would be the way to get into this is is this a learn by doing thing or um so i don't think that you need to have a special background so i don't have a background in formal methods um i don't have a phd in formal methods or anything but in computer i mean you should be a computer scientist right uh, that would be would be good i guess oh, uh, so um i think you need to have some some engineering engineering kind of approaching software making software so the uh if you're if you're just hacking software and don't really have a good typically don't have a good mental model and you don't have uh, the, the desire to actually make that thing correct that's going to be hard but apart from that um, so what, you, what you're saying is that if you're already a bit structured and you think about problem solving in the way that Okay, this problem consists, this big problem consists of these five small problems. And each of those needs input like this and produces output like that. And, um, then at the end, you plug everything together and you have your program. I guess that that would help. Yeah. In, in, in contrary to some unstructured, I, I start hacking and then change that big mess until it, I think it solves my problem. That would be the, the, the counter example, I guess. Um, so from my experience, and that, that also includes um, people that I had in my team, you, you often just need a good, uh, a good engineer that, that works in a structured way. 
and um, getting into the, the verification, at least with the Spark tools that we have used, um, is, uh, is mostly a matter of practicing the thing. I mean, um, having a training certainly helps. I had both. I, I, um, I, I have people who had a, tra a formal training in, in Spark and getting all the basics and getting the background uh, explained in the training. That certainly helps. I also know people who got in, into that language from, from zero without any, without any training. So I, I think also this is one of the major advantages of Spark that you can do formal methods without actually having much direct exposure to the usual formal methods tools. Because I found the, uh, like speaking of Coq, I found that very challenging uh, for, yeah. because the, the mindset is so different and the way you model stuff is so different. And in, in, in Spark, you sort of write your program like before, you just have to be more structured about it. Mm -hmm. And you write all the assertions that you should have written in a good C++ program as well. You just have a structured way of writing those And ideally, you push a button, wait a bit, and you're good. Yeah, I mean, what should be emphasized is that we are still talking about absence of runtime errors. All yeah. you said is true if you uh, want to achieve absence of runtime errors, which is more than most people do in their software. Um, so with this, um, you, you probably just... Um, need to somehow get used to the tools, need to get a feel of what needs to be shown to, to prove absence of runtime errors. If we go a bit, bit further up and, and want to show functional correctness, then of course you need some formal model of what your program is doing. And then, so we, we only rarely do this. Um, and then you quickly are at a point, um, where you need some additional, some external tool, for example, like, like the Cog Theory Improver. Um, there is, um, there is a way to prove um, Spark verification conditions in Coq. I've never done that. Um, I have watched people doing this with the Isabel theory improver, which also does have a plugin that can uh, can connect with Spark. Um, but this is this is a, it's a different thing, actually. I think people outside are also very excited about form methods. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we have to join them later. <laughs> yeah, we should do that. So what do you actually do in your in your company? So do you actually do components or do you also do full programs? So is it a made-to-order thing? So someone comes to you and says, like, uh, I, I need the XML thing and it needs to Yeah, work. That, that, that does happen. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, we, um, we do have projects that are most in the form of, of, of consulting and development and, and also research projects. And what does happen is that the customer comes and says, I, I need this or that encryption component, or I, I need an XML library. So are there, I guess that uh, the people who come to you are sort of already convinced that they need something that really needs to work. But is there actually, so I have this feeling that there are many people out there that are blissfully unaware and just write uh, pretty shitty software. Um, is there a way to convince these people that they should spend like more on on uh, on developing these components and then get a better result? Or is just I, I, I totally agree that those people should should consider doing that. Um, but you're right. We often have have customers that are already convinced 
that, that this is what they should be doing or they already do it and just want, want to have a certain component or library. Um, we also had customers who um, were not into that um, high assurance software business, but it's it's significantly harder to get those people convinced to to, to program in a different style. I mean, this is kind of a also kind of a cultural thing, right? I mean, if you have these if if, if you have these hackers that just put together that crappy software, they have to change the way they they have to change the way they they make their software. So. So, um, so how are actually the ergonomics if you say, okay, we have this pretty messy program, but we want to have a part of it written in, in Spark. Hmm. So does that work? Is that a feasible strategy? Um, it, we know that it works. So what we, what we did um, recently is um, taking a TLS library. So it's called FIS from Facebook, um, and it's implemented in C++. It's a TLS 1.3 library, um, and we we ripped off the the parse the, the parser the TLS parser from that library and replaced it by a parser that that was implemented in Spark. So actually, um, what what we what we have been doing is creating a framework where you can specify message formats and it generates you Spark code, which pretty much um, proofs out of the box. So if you have formalized it in our in our domain specific language for messages, then it, it you can pretty much directly prove it. And to um, to validate this concept and if the um, the the capabilities that this this toolset has, um, we we re we replace the parser of a real world TLS library. So that is something that you could do if you have a big C or whatever program. You could. Just link Spark Spark code through a foreign function interface, and the security argument would be, um, if uh, if the portions that get in touch with external data, with something that an attacker could deliver to your software, uh, then you you could make this in Spark and then only pass sanitized data to the to the big other part of your software. And the the overall strategy would be to do that to the most critical software part, and then if you have more resources, you just sort of expand the uh, the correct part of your program. Um, it, it and maybe could, have some. It could be a strategy. I'm not so sure that's going to work out for very complex monolithic software. Uh, so if if your if your big software is not meant to be split into parts and um, every part is interconnected with every other part in your architecture, then you're going to have a hard day finding the places where you can cut this. Um, so I, I don't think there is a, there's a general answer. And I, I would generally also favor the component-based approach over that library approach I, I just have mentioned. So maybe you can introduce the component-based approach a bit. So what, what are you actually talking about? So do you have a tangible uh, example? Of where uh, this would be useful. So I I, I mentioned um, encryption earlier. So uh, what what we have built in the past is an encryption component for um, for network, for example. So the the the, the TLS um, library that we changed this was just an intermediate step to a, um, to a component based TLS implementation that we are currently developing. So what does that specifically mean? So how is that different from taking three libraries and making TLS out of it? Um, so 
Today, if you have some big program and it uses a DLS library, then um, the, the library and the program is in the same address space. It's linked together. So if your big, if your big untrusted application has a problem, as a, as a security issue, then the attacker could also take the, the TLS keys from the library. You need to trust both equally well. Um, what we are doing is moving the, um, the TL, the actual TLS part that does the, the, the cryptographic handshake and the actual encryption of the, uh, of the network packets to a separate component, um, on a component based system. So we are we're using different systems, uh, right now. So, um, the, the GNOTOS framework would be one, uh, uh, the Muen separation kernel would be another. Um, so the, the, the idea is to, um, just take the security critical part of that of that uh, TLS library, put it into a component, and ha then have a, a security policy that um, enforces the communication between the application and the TLS component, but uh, but no di direct interaction of your application with with the network. So so the two would be really isolated from each other. Um, yeah, there would be separate processes or something like that. Right. That that's the. I, I mean, separate processes and um, and that communication policy. I mean, if your application can still talk to the internet directly, then this does not help much. But uh, if you can set up your system um, in a way that the application only talks to the trusted TLS component, um, then it can only choose to not interact at all or over this trusted component. So there is one use case where this is really nice, and that is when. Um, you have a large fleet of web servers that all need your, the private keys for your uh, TLS certificate. But behind the web server, there's some horrible, horrible code that does your business logic. And occasionally these get hacked. And at that point, you want to sort of zap this one machine, but you do not want to deploy new keys to everyone else because this is horrible. Yeah. So, and in that, uh, Scenario is super nice to be able to take the component that has access to the keys and wrap it in some nice isolated world where even if the evil component talks to it, it will still, you're still sure that it will never give out the private keys. Exactly. So, so is that a little bit like the sandboxing approach that's done in browsers or mobile devices or is, is it stronger? Uh, how does it relate to that? Um, so sandboxing, I'm not, not not completely sure what what your notion of sandboxing is. So I, I mean, typically what you have is like you, you you put some like a browser tab into a into a separate process, but I think it still would do the TLS in that in that inside that process. So I think in the browser example, one of the assets you have and you want to protect all the, all the fancy cookies that allow you to talk to the Google servers. And they are still in this one big address space together with the not so trustworthy code you downloaded from the internet. So the, the, the difference to sandboxing, which, which I think is, I, I, I isolate different untrusted entities from each other is that, uh, you have untrusted entity and then one trusted entity and the, and the, and the strict policy, data flow policy between them. And so that, I mean, in the end, this, this component based approach with trusted components uh, is, is what enables you to do formal verification in the first place. It would be very hard to verify your whole browser because it's just too complex and 
maybe also too dynamic to do a, to do a feasible verification of that thing. Um, but when you say, okay, the browser can do whatever it wants, but if it wants to do networking, it uses this channel that that ends in our trusted TLS component, and he has it has no choice to to send its data somewhere else. Then you can can have the, the trusted TLS component, and it, it, it will be small enough to have some some sensible formal verification on that component. Yeah, the way the way I think about it is, if you have a component system, then and you design it that way, that you have a small set of trusted components. But now the next step is, okay, I have these components that I need to trust. So how do I make them trustworthy? And this is exactly. where this is where the the, the Ada Spark approach comes in. Um, and I mean, they need to be small, so you have a chance to make them trustworthy. So the, the, yeah. in the past, the argument was, and, and it was right actually. We we have small small trusted components because small is easier to audit and and make sure that it actually does the has the intended functionality and, and, and does it right. And we go a step further and say small also helps with verification because it is more expensive and 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 takes longer than just writing the writing some arbitrary software but by focusing on the security critical parts of your of your architecture you have a chance to to get verification of the of the interesting parts yeah so to to go off on a slight tangent here so the one sad thing in uh, our industry is that it's usually easier to buy some additional product that layers something around the existing messy code. Um, and then you get a nice glossy piece of paper, which says like, oh, we, we applied the FUBAR Corp security uh, shield to the software nodes. Okay. And what, what you're talking about and what you're also doing is basically re-architecting existing software to be secure Inherently, yeah. I mean, we could still call, call our our trusted components the the Fubar Security Shield if if someone wants that. Um, but <laughs> uh, you're right. I mean, if if you do if you do TLS, for example, in a trusted component, then what the application does, has to do is different from from the, the the ordinary TLS library, and you somehow have to. Get your architecture right. There will be a component for key key agreement, and there will be a component for actually encrypting. And maybe you need the key store. So yes, this is a non non trivial system architecture that you have to come up with. Um, One problem is also that uh, programmers are not taught in a way to write software like this. So when I came out of university, no one told me told me how to analyze my software in that way. So Like what, another example is like an email client. So which are the the things that keep the secrets in the email client? So okay, somewhere in there are my uh, credentials for the email server. Somewhere maybe some crypto keys for my PGP. Um, and then of course there's like a rendering engine which can do HTTP. Eh, HTML rendering is probably horribly complex. Yeah. And no one taught me in university to design it in a way that all the The trusted things are in one corner of the system. Then there is a big wall, and then there is the JavaScript world. Um, so, is there? Do you know of anything where you could actually learn something like this, or is is this also a learning by doing? 
thing. So I, uh, I didn't learn this in university either. Um, and, and I, I mean, if you think about it, there's no strong, strong consensus on, on that, on, on how we should build secure software anyways in, in the industry, right? It's, uh, so every, every security issue comes as a surprise to, to the people who build the software over and over again. Um, uh, no. So in, in university, I don't know that what, what's probably, um, Closest to what you were just saying is uh, what what the people at Gnode Labs doing with their with their Gnode OS framework, and probably what's uh, what's written down in the Gnode Foundations manual that you can get on their website. So that is, I I know that uh, the 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 email client idea you just mentioned that is part of what they have as as a vision. So to, I mean, there's no reason that. Um, that the, the thing that renders the, the HTML is the same in the same process as the thing that access your PGP key is in the same process as the thing that does some complex network network stack and, and interacts with the outside with the outside world. So um, and that, the, that that should be something where you which you architect really with what is in my trusted computing base and what's not in my trusted computing base. And there, there's not even, there's not only one trusted computing base even in your email program, right? Because, uh, maybe the, the thing that, that, that has your PGP key is, is still a different thing than the, than the one that does TLS with your mail server. Why should these, these different keys match? One is, one is rather long term. The other may not, not be so long term and uh, it's, it's it's a different thing, so why not having two different trusted components or even even more of them? So, um, I guess one reason why why there is no no uh, widespread agreement on on architecture component based applications and and systems is that it's harder, right? I mean, uh, just lumping everything everything together in one monolithic application that this happens naturally. And, and component-based system is exactly the opposite. Getting a good component-based system does not happen naturally. You have to design it that way. I think I would say the problem is that a lot of software is not designed to begin with. And if, um, <laughs> right. if you have a piece of software that is naturally grown over 20 years, then as you said before, it's, it's sort of hopeless to... So if someone would say like, oh... Here are the, um, I'm not sure how many, like a hundred million lines of code that is Outlook. Hmm. Go architect it to make it secure. I mean, I think uh, I would just sit and cry in a corner. Um, yeah, probably you would first throw it away and then try architecting something. But um, yes, I mean, that that's the point. Uh, mon monolithic is like what happens if you extend it, extend the, the, the software further and, and, um, uh, so we we created um, so Spark right now does not have any notion of component-based system, which naturally is a problem if you want to want to build component-based system with systems with Spark. So we had to come up with um, some environment that you can build your Spark components in, and which fits nicely with component-based systems, and which also fits nicely with our goal to to verify our components. Um, so what support are you missing? What support are you looking for? Um, something like uh, 
I want to send a uh, network packet to the outside world. There is, I mean, it's probably not uh, supposed to be in the Spark in the Spark language, and there could be a library. But um, most of the things that are in the ADA standard or exist as libraries are also coming from that monolithic world where you. Um, go to this ambient authority, which is your Linux kernel, and then you magically get a network socket. And you mean the, the problem that anywhere in your code, uh, you could actually send a network exactly, packet, yes. which is um, uh, is really weird. So uh, with my limited exposure to Haskell programming, uh, yeah. this is very, this is really, really weird after a while to, to be able to do arbitrary side effects to your system yeah. from arbitrary points in the code. And then you sit there and say, oh God, where do I get the socket from? I cannot create it out of nothing. And that's exactly the, the issue that, that we had. Or, I mean, we initially started out, uh, maybe I should go, go a step back. We, we did a project on uh, the, the GNOS framework. Um, and it was supposed to be in Spark. And back then there was almost no Spark support in there. Um, so we created a Spark runtime, which actually is just a set of libraries that uh, that uh, uh, integrates uh, your Spark program with, with your underlying system. Um, and first we thought, okay, we're going to just do it like Ada does and just import the package and say, print something to the lock, for example. So this is... This is ambient authority. You just go to, go to, to the system and then you can magically print something. But this is bad for, for the reason that you, that you mentioned. Um, and so we, uh, after the first version of that runtime, we moved support for these locking functionality and stuff and introduced something that uh, strictly only gives you the abil ability to do something when you hold a capability, which is some abstract object where you can then invoke operations on. And this solved the problem for us. And on Gnode, it has a nice side effect that you can map it to the actual capabilities that they have in the system. Um, and on other platforms like Muen or, or Linux that do not directly have this concept, then you can still use it to hold some file descriptor or just leave it empty and do the ambient authority stuff that you would do anyways. So the, this this. Um, pl this platform abstraction that we did try to for for all the projects that we did, we we looked into what additional interface do we need for the language that um, that does not assume that that monolithic system. So we did this for networking, for logging, for block devices, um, and it's probably going to extend in the future. Um, and also as a side condition, how can you still make these components? easily provable if that exists. So it shouldn't be when, when, when writing such a component in, in, in our in our environment, it should not um, be a big issue to actually verify it. Plus, we also have a uh, we wanted to be to have components that are asynchronous and event driven, because we thought if you want to uh, do high performance components, then you're going to need this and you so in Muen, for example, is a separation kernel which with fixed time slice scheduling. So if you have some fixed time slice allocated to some program, um, then if you have no work to do anymore, you sit there and burn CPU cycles. And that's it. If you're not clever with your, with your resources, then you're just waiting and burning CPU cycles. So what you want to do in such a component is getting asynchronous events and uh, 
processing everything that you got in and and batch it out uh, to uh, so you use optimally use your your time slice that you have allocated and that was the design goal of that platform abstraction. Okay, so I think we had a we found a good um, a technical wrap up point. I have one uh, not so technical question, and that is. You hear in the news that all the politicians are so scared of being hacked by dollar country um, and that there's a lot of uh, focus on on uh, defending our critical infrastructure so do you do you feel that this translates to a larger interest in actually writing software that works? Unfortunately, not. No, I don't. Don't at all feel that. Um, so, the, the defending our infrastructure is is what what I see today is mostly um, doing something to your processes, like um, performing updates in time and making sure not to click on malicious links and stuff. Um, that's one part. Um, and, and the other, I guess, are these, are these, I, I want to wrap something around my software solutions, maybe put it inside some sandbox or something, which does not really solve the issue. So, um, we do not see any, any change in, with respect to the desire to build better software. The, we still have the same people asking for verified software that we had earlier, but I don't see a general, general change here so why do you think that is is that out of people don't know about the alternatives or is it just too hard or too expensive or um i mean so, so i think that or is it good enough i think this is the other point oh yeah that's the is, one I is what good enough Is the existing state of uh, software um, just good I, enough and people I don't mean, this bother? Is, I think there's a clear answer to that, no, because <laughs> stuff gets hacked every day. Um, uh, so I would say that many people don't know about alternatives. Um, so that this, I mean, the reason is that our industry has taught them that uh, that bugs are natural and you cannot do anything about it. But of course, I mean... If, if you have two competitors, one is doing correct software with a, with a safe language and there's formal verification. And there's another competitor who just hacks the stuff together, but, but is, is definitely has, has, has his software earlier on the market. Then the question is what happens if, if the customers have no good reason to buy the, the verified and, 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 robust software, then they're probably gonna take the, the crappy one that's on the market earlier. So if we compete on that basis, then it's going to be hard to win with formally verified software. So you always need this this extra requirement of reliable software, I guess. So is there something we can do about that or we can do with... I mean, so that's more a society question than a technical mm. one. Um, but yeah, I mean... I'm, apart from 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 educating people that at least for the situations where you have a requirement for reliable software i mean on the other hand 
if you think about um, IoT and smart home and 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 and, and, and this stuff, um, I mean. You don't want to have people opening your door lock remotely via the internet. So this is something that I guess we we could convey to people that this is a requirement they do have. And um, maybe educating, I mean, not the, the ordinary people that use the, the smart home stuff, but maybe educating the producers of these products that they, they could do better. And it's not like it's... Um, it's it's ten times more expensive. Maybe it's twice as expensive. But then you are the one who has um, has proven that the stuff cannot be hacked. Um, may, maybe that would be an approach. So you need to find the one smart home smart lock vendor that's actually that actually cares. <laughs> I don't see. Uh, so I think from the companies you have a hard time competing is. Especially because there will be 10 other companies that uh, will just hack shit together. Uh, I think there needs to be standards that are enforced. So regulations. There's just like today, if you buy, uh, if you build a bridge, people don't expect that it will just randomly fall down if someone walks over it at night at three o'clock in 23 minutes. So, but this is how software works today. So, and I think we have to, to come as a, as an industry to a point that there is actually a agreed upon way to design so software. The problem with regulations is that, I mean, we have had accidents in airplanes that are now supposed to be software errors. Um, and this is a highly, highly, highly regulated market. So is that enough? <laughs> Maybe liability. I mean, Today, how, a software vendor typically is not liable for the for the bugs that are in the software. So maybe that would be if you are an architect and um, your your construction your bridge has some flaw that it makes it break down, then I would say that you are liable for it. If I would step into Gernot Heiser's shoes for a moment, uh, so. So for people who don't know, so he's like the the uh, father of the SEL4 microkernel that has some formally proven properties. He would say that if there is an alternative where you're sure that it works and you didn't choose it, isn't that sort of criminally... Yeah. Aren't you at that point... Um, I'm sure how to put it. Um, help me here. At that point, you're sort of responsible for for the problem because you you actively didn't choose the correct software. Do you see this something as as a way? So let's say we have like a pool of formally proven components flying around, and maybe there is some organization that funds this to increase mm -hmm. it over time. That uh, just by the mere mere existence of this pool, that uh, people would be forced more and more to use it because it would become unacceptable to have a, a bug in a component where you could have chosen the formally correct, uh, formally proven one. I mean, that, that sounds like it could be a solution. Honestly, I cannot really imagine how that, how that would work, but I, I, guess, I can't either, but, uh, I guess that would be, would be, would be interesting to, um, somehow, yeah. Somehow uh, you, you would need to have a choice, like um, if I need network stack or 
I don't know, an XML library, then uh, I have certain products to choose for which come with a certain assurance. Um, and then I can, can use them. Or maybe I, I, I start building an, uh, a verified software component myself to, to um, save money or to, uh, to somehow uh, get an advantage over my competitors. Uh, I still cannot imagine how we could make this happen. So how you could, I mean, it, it won't happen alone. You somehow have to motivate or even force software vendors to do that. I think this is a good um, call out to the listeners to actually start looking at this and write software where um, you're actually sure that it does what it says on the label. And the more we have of it, the more the incentives are to actually use it. Yeah. The statement would, would also be that there exists technology which enables you to do that. And it's not only these, these, uh, university provers where you have to have a PhD to, to use them. So you as an ordinary software developer, as, as an ordinary software company, you can, you can write, uh, software with, with high assurance properties. That's possible. Yeah, and we will also have uh, a great list of resources in the show notes. So Alex was kind enough to collect some um, uh, links to get you started uh, about Ada and Ada Spark. Um, I looked through that. I recognized some. Um, this definitely helps in writing your first Spark program. Um, okay, I think um, this is a good point. Um, to thank Alex to come to our podcast and be the first guest here. Thanks for having me. Let's hope that the future brings more uh, formally proven software. I definitely would welcome it. <laughs>